Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth with John Warren. You can find us wherever you go to get your podcasts. Also, for more information, go to johnwarrenmedia.com. While there, you can also click on the tab for our sponsor, CFS Financial. CFS Financial is a full-service commercial consulting firm that focuses on debt, focuses on uh, reconstructing debt, negotiating debt, funding new projects. Our focus is on uh, Christian schools, churches, and parachurch ministries. We also do some work with for-profit companies from time to time. That's CFS Financial. Go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information. Well, we've been at this now for over six months. This whole relentless truth, the pursuit of truth. And today, we're going to talk about a controversial topic and kind of a larger topic that informs us on the controversial topic. That topic is critical race theory. Before you go, before you rush away and say, I've had enough of this talk, before you do that, we're going to take a bit of a nuanced, counterintuitive approach, so stay with me. Now, Josh Brown who owns his productions, the production company that handles Relentless Truth, that makes it sound good, that edits all of my horrible delivery and makes this weak voice and this relatively well-informed podcast without a lot of finesse sound much better, recommended to me, Josh recommended to me months ago, in fact, almost at the beginning after he had heard just a few episodes of Relentless Truth, he said, hey, why don't you take on critical race theory? So I went to my personal executive director, my wife, Connie, and we had a couple of conversations about this. And I decided after you know, going round and round in circles with, well, wait a minute, we should do it because we should talk about it because critical race theory is very important to, wait a minute, we're going to offend people, and how do you, in a podcast format, adequately cover such a thing? And and so we we just sort of cycled again and again with the positive and negative implications of tackling a topic like this, and decided not to for a while. We've had some incredibly special guests in the meantime. In fact, I've got a quick update on one of them. Uh, Jeff Driscoll, you may have noticed, the NFL quarterback who was on early on. He has made the uh, Houston Texans team uh, here near, I guess, about midseason. And he's been playing special teams and tight end. And he's also backup quarterback. So you just never know what injuries are going to do during a year. But anyway, back to the topic, critical race theory. I decided not to take it on, but it's the topic that won't go away. and, And I probably not unlike many of you, I see the battle lines drawn on social media and kind of shake my head. And I frankly, personally get a little confused as to what critical race theory actually is. So I'm a teacher and I have on average about 100 students a year in various classes at Circle Christian School, I say proudly. And it's important for me to know this stuff. In fact, I walked in a couple of years ago to a, a classroom and I proclaimed my wokeness as in I thought that when I first heard this word, I thought that it meant cool, that it was a substitute for rad, lit, or cool or something like that. And my students quickly corrected me. Thankfully, they're very gracious year after year after year. And they corrected me and said, I don't think, I remember a young man said, I don't think that means what you think it means. And so a couple of years later, I hear this Vody Bauckham lecture on critical race theory. And he says again and again, 
he was talking about social justice, and he, and he said, I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. And in Bodhi's inimitable style, he repeated that uh, several times throughout this lecture. So we're going to take this on, and uh, we're going we're gonna to explain what it is. This is not intended to be a comprehensive discussion, but I'm hoping we can eliminate some confusion. So critical race theory and related topics have caused so much animus, uh, noise in the system, and confusion that I want to try to pull the camera back a bit and look at what basically underlies critical theory. Now, now critical theory, and, and we won't get in the weeds too much here, but critical theory is really a Marxist doctrine that focuses on the oppressed and the oppressor. And what it really says is that only the oppressed can see this. So it says the oppressed see see that the oppressors are oppressing them, but the oppressors are blinded and they won't even understand this. This is so baked into who they are from a, even a DNA standpoint at this point, but, but from a historical standpoint and from a societal standpoint, think sociology, think groups of people and how they think. So, so they, they believe that from that standpoint, and they typically focus on white, heteronormative, cisgender, race, religion, gender, and socioeconomic status is kind of the best way to sum, sum it up. You, you end up with the caricature looking something like this. It's the, the oppressor is the white, male, Christian, heterosexual. And I'm grossly oversimplifying. And this person, according to critical race theorists, critical theorists in general, cannot see the fact that they have these biases. So it's akin to, and domestically this happens from time to time, I'll say it delicately, where a husband and wife are having a conversation, not that I have any experience with this whatsoever, and the, the other party has assumed already, before the argument starts, before the debate, the dispute, the, the, the disagreement even gets underway, one side assumes the other is not capable of understanding their position. Now, with me, <laughs> that's true sometimes. I have, a, I have a caveman theory that I share with my students that says all men are cavemen, and I know that's offensive to probably everybody, but it, it's a caricature, obviously, and it's somewhat true that men and women are, I believe, wired fundamentally differently. Now, I, I didn't just say that all women are alike and can be simply characterized. And I didn't say all men are alike and can be simply characterized, but men and women are a little different and men often, we often resemble cavemen. We're, we're a little more simple. And I think the sooner we come to grips with that, uh, I might call it less sophisticated, less nuanced. And, and that's not true of every guy, but, but, it, but I think it is true generally. And so, and so it's easy in, in a, any sort of dispute, any sort of debate, to create a caricature of the other side and say, you cannot possibly understand where I'm coming from. And guys are probably shuddering right now because you've heard that before. And th this even happens in high school in relationships. It's the I don't even know you argument. Well, critical theorists, critical race theorists in particular, make this argument. And I want to pull back, as I said earlier, I want to kind of pull back the camera and try to determine today, just by way of overview, where that comes from, from, from where that emanates. And I think it's important to understand that, and I don't want to lose your interest with a, a detailed discussion on postmodernism, but I think it's important to understand that critical race theorists are just a, a facet of, just a byproduct of, if you will, this whole post-truth world that we live in today. And let me tell you what, what I mean by that in terms of uh, maybe a couple of examples. I remember when uh, Brett Kavanaugh was, if you remember, just grilled by that Senate committee. And I remember Cory Booker and Kamala Harris in particular, and I don't know why they stand out. I do know some reasons they stand out in terms of their ideology. 
but their comments in particular at that hearing stand out to me. And they both said in different ways, what is your truth? Or that is your truth. Now here's my truth or their truth. And, and that's emblematic of a problem, I think, in philosophy. When, when I talk to my students about the really important philosophical and theological underpinning that we must have, I try to pull back the camera to the big idea, just a few straightforward, not simple, but important big ideas. And so this issue, critical theory, denies the fact that truth is true. And in fact, they would argue that if a person claims to have an understanding of absolute truth, that they are bigoted and arrogant and narrow-minded because it's impossible, they believe, to really understand absolute truth. And even that statement, as many before me have pointed out, uh, before I started doing it in class years ago, the, even the statement, there is no absolute truth, is a statement of absolute truth. Therefore, of course, there's absolute truth. If there were not absolute truth, if we couldn't rely on truth, then we couldn't talk. Because words have meaning. And they don't always have absolute meaning. A word may be used in different ways and sometimes have different connotations and even different cultural connotations. But the big ideas, the underlying truth, the big ideas that are expressed with clear language and clear understanding do rely on this fundamental notion that that there is such a thing as truth, as absolute truth. And we have to agree on that. We don't have to agree, I guess, to have a discussion that there's an intelligent designer, a creator, that God created the earth the way that we know and believe that he did. We don't have to necessarily agree on that, but we do have to agree, I believe, to even have a meaningful debate on this subject, that the notion of something, a proposition being either true or false is correct, is accurate. So the bigger idea here is this notion of truth. And if we believe that we're in a, you'll hear this uh, from time to time from some, we are in a post-truth world, meaning We've evolved so much. It's this Darwinian notion that we've spiraled upwardly so much that we've gotten to the point that we, we, we understand now because we're so sophisticated. We understand that truth is a social construct and you can have your truth and you can have your truth and that person can have their truth and I can have my truth and those truths don't have to align. And in particular, we see this in societal groups. So, so the truth an African-American community and the truth in a, in a white suburb community or the truth in a, a Muslim country versus the truth in a Christian, primarily Christian nation or free or a libertarian nation. All of those truths can differ and the logical contradictions shouldn't really trouble us at all. We should suspend critical thinking altogether is the idea. And if we don't, then we have an agenda and we fall in, we might fall in, the critical race theorist says, this oppressive group. So when you start pulling this apart and you hear about things like, I'm going I'm to try just one, one more quick rabbit trail here. You hear about groups like the 1619 Project. And you hear about language like, well, you hear references to Marxism. I, I just did it earlier. And you hear words like cisgender, heteronormative. I mean, these are not words I grew up, you know, these, these were not in my college vocabulary, freshman English vocabulary tests. They, they these, there were, there were some doozies. Uh, I, I remember distinctly the word loquacious. I think I remember intransigent giving me a little bit of trouble and exogenous and all kinds of words, but I don't remember cisgender or heteronormative. So, so we're going to talk just for, just for a few minutes here about the use of language of key terms and key concepts with respect to this critical race theory issue. If you're just tired of social media attacks and you say, well, wait a minute, it seems like the good guys are against critical race theory and you, and you turn on the news and you see this Loudoun County, Virginia debate and 
among the school board and parents. And, and you say, wow, parents, because of COVID, are now hearing about all of this, this bias, this ideology that is in the classroom because they had to you know, have their students on a laptop taking classes during this uh, the shutdowns. And now they're aware that this thing, this critical race theory underlies everything and critical race theory is evil. And then that leads to a debate on the flag and the thin blue line flag. And then that leads to a discussion about the 1619 project. And that leads to a discussion about black lives matter. And, and then white people want to argue, well, all lives matter. And even black conservatives and some Hispanics will argue all lives matter. And, and the all lives matter, the black lives matter crowd says, wait a minute, you're taking our slogan and you're mocking us. And, and we end up in this, just this swirl of nonsense and you, and you might, and I appreciate the nuance and, and some of you and your care in your communication. So it's not all nonsense. It's not what I just said, but there is a lot of nonsense. A lot of, if it says BLM, it's bad. And if it says thin blue line or blue line flag or, or don't defund the police or whatever the issue is, then it's good. And if you're a good critical thinker and you like detail and you, you use Google as your ideology map, then you're, you're probably just confused right now over all of these terms and what they mean. And if you do what I tend to do, and I, I'm ashamed to admit this because I would counsel my students not to do this and still do, don't just go to people who you think are, quote, on your side, end quote. Don't do that and say, okay, well, what he said or what she said, that, that's the view because John Piper said it or Tim Keller said it or, or, or some pick somebody else that you like to follow, then they must be right. And those are right an awful lot. But we've got to approach this issue and think through it critically. And so I'm going to try to explain in this really brief segment today in the time we have remaining, I want to just talk about critical race theory. So, so knowing that the underlying concept is that we're in a post-truth world, that's very important. And knowing that, let's just look at this. Let's try to answer this question. Should Christians oppose critical race theory? What is critical theory? How are we, how are we really to look at this? And maybe we could even go really practical here and talk about how then do we interface? What, what position should we take, if any? And what are we obligated to do? What would be constructive? How do we best glorify God by loving our neighbor as ourselves with respect to this challenging topic? So in critical race theory, we're going to start with this. All human life is seen through the Marxist lens of oppressed versus oppressor. Now, we're not going to do a history lesson today on Karl Marx's life, but I want you to ma imagine someone who grew up in a very sad, confused environment. There was, during his life in the 1800s, there, there was lots of death due to illness. In fact, his two oldest siblings died, and he became the oldest in his family, his family, imagine the confusing of a confusion of having a rabbi in your family, your family being Jewish, but before your birth, they converted to Christianity, and historians say that might have been for business purposes. We don't know. Not a lot is known about his childhood. And then you look at the rest of his life, and I'm, I'm going to simplify because I don't think you want me to go through every step of Karl Marx's life since this isn't a political science class, but it's, it's interesting that he hung out with some very liberal thinkers. He got married. He married a lady who was an aristocrat and there was, it was almost scandalous that, that she married him because they dated for seven years. They were even engaged, I believe for seven years and they got married and he was, he was a commoner and she was an aristocrat and they lived in, in what I would call abject poverty. And because of his ideology, because and his education is also interesting, but he embraced this oppression model, this model that said the oppressed should rise up in a revolutionary kind of way and uh, counter the oppressor. So 
you know about uh, the Communist Manifesto, you know about other work, uh, Das Kapital, you know that he saw, I almost said he opposed capitalism, he saw problems, he saw challenges in capitalism, but what he advocated and what he's regarded for now and was regarded for within a couple of decades of his death is this notion of economic oppression and this model, this, we'll call it a Marxist or socialist model that said that the worker, the proletariat, should rise up and should overcome the bourgeoisie, the ruling class. And so the proletariat, the worker, is the oppressed, and the oppressor is the bourgeoisie or the ruling class. And he, he advocated this and was basically exiled from country to country. He spent time in Germany, France, and England, England being his last place of residency. He lived in poverty, and Friedrich Engels, Engel was his mentor, sort of, and came from a wealthy family and passed on some cash to Marx consistently over the course of most of his adult life, allowing him to write on some really controversial topics. And if you read Marx, if you, if you must study him, I don't worry about even young people kind of hitting themselves in the forehead and saying, wow, that makes perfect sense. There are some things that Marx had to say that do cause us to kind of ponder. He did rightly point out some weaknesses in capitalism, at least some opportunity for taking advantage in capitalism. But what he didn't do well, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, is he didn't really propose a better system. He proposed a system that sounds more fair, and yet it's actually a weaker system. And, and the bottom line, and I'll come back to this, if you're interested in learning more on this, send an email to john at uh, johnwarrenmedia.com or just go to the contact page at johnwarrenmedia.com. And I will take this on in another episode if there's enough interest or comment on on social media. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. But when you get to the end of Marxism, socialism, what happens is the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, this group of, with respect to critical race theory, this group of white males who are cisgender, heteronormative Christians, just to continue the caricature, when you look at that group and the proletariat, they oppressed, rise up and they take over from that group, then they're left with a new bourgeoisie, a new ruling class called government. And that's the problem. And I know I'm oversimplifying today because I want to cover all of this and I've got a long way to go here, but I just want you to think about, I want us to think about the fact that the ruling class, and, and you go, go to Cuba, Venezuela, the old Soviet Union, now Russia, China, you can look around the world at this and you can see where these tenants, although those countries I just named are all, all employ this differently, but you can see that they have replaced over time the bourgeoisie, the ruling class with government, which becomes a new ruling class. Benevolent dictatorship is the most efficient form of government. We can all agree on that, can't we? However, it's one of the most problematic because the dictator does not typically, because of human nature being what it is, remain benevolent. So there are all types of government all over the world. And this notion of oppressed versus oppressor, this embracing of some of the key tenets of Marxism, although it might sound absurd to some, it is embraced throughout the world. And one of the answers that, that Christians often give, conservative Christians often give here is, well, look, you can't find an example of socialism that really worked. If you go to Cuba, you look at the challenges there, the haves and the have-nots. You go to Venezuela and other, plenty of other countries. Those are two of my favorites that you read about an awful lot in social media. And just to warn you, if you haven't experienced this, the critical race theorist, the Marxist, is going to say, well, yeah, the reason those systems didn't work is you've got to have worldwide communism to make it work. It won't work in just one country. The reason that Venezuela failed or is failing is a failed state or Cuba has its struggles is not because of the system. 
It's because everybody has to buy into the system to make it work. To make communism work, you've got to have worldwide uh, buy-in. So let's just look at where we differ. Forget the caricature for a second. Forget the fact that the, the critical race theorist says that you can't understand if you're a conservative. You can't understand if you have these identity factors, if you're, if you're the wrong race, if you're white or you're religious, you believe in God, you're not an atheist, and you don't believe in transgenderism, you don't, you're from a certain socioeconomic class with certain socioeconomic status. You can't even understand their argument. So, so let's, let's put that off to the side and say, yes, I think we can. I think we can look at critical race theory and Marxism, and we can understand this. We, can, we have the ability to be objective. I can, although... I have about a three-inch vertical leap. I can go to an NBA game and really enjoy it and understand it and appreciate it. I can know a little bit about the game and some theory and where the ball should be played. So I think we're capable of critical thinking here, and I think we can look at this worldview objectively even if we are white male Christians. But the biblical worldview, the correct worldview, the worldview based on on truth, and I know that's going to make some people angry to hear, but it sees people as either in sin, in Adam, through Adam, or in Christ. That is, all members of society are in one of these two groups. The correct, I believe, and I believe this is clear from Scripture, the correct way for us as Christians to see race is as a human race. Now, I cringe when I hear people say, well, I'm colorblind. I I don't think you are. I mean, I am actually colorblind and blue and green look the same to me and red and orange do, but I can see people of color are people of color. And I grew up in the deep South and I'm telling you right now, (laughs) I've heard so many Christians in the deep South say, well, I'm colorblind when in fact, I don't even think the biblical requirement is to be colorblind. I think the biblical requirement is to recognize that we're either, we're one human race, we're all in sin and in need of a savior. That is the characteristic that unites us. All this stereotyping that white people have these tendencies, black people have those, ten, that, those, are, those are harmful, they are not helpful in the least. We all come to all issues with some bias and we should be aware of that. But it is the grace of God, it is repentance, it is regeneration by faith that are the bases for being in Christ. This is not something that, that, that white people get to claim, obviously. It's not something that a religious sect or a religious few or a religious hierarchy can claim. Paul makes it clear in Romans 4 that even Abraham and David, he brings into the courtroom as witnesses and he says, even they or especially they, were justified by faith. So this justification by faith applies to all people. So the battle lines here, really between critical race theory and the biblical worldview, is really fundamentally how we see people. In fact, it goes back to, and I repeat this a lot in class, and I've said it on this podcast before, who is God, who is man, and how does God relate to man? If you, if you can pull back the camera far enough that those are the issues you focus on, you'll be surprised how you get clarity on this issue. Now, I want to talk for just a minute about the 1619 Project. This is interesting. This is a project that you can go to their website. One of them is project1619.org. And there's a presentation there that you can see on, uh, I think it was released on uh, October 26th of, of this year, 2021, which will be last year by the time this episode is released, that really says that the first enslaved Africans brought to English North America is, was on August 25th of 1619. That, when you hear the 1619 Project or Project 1619, that really is what it's about. It's in, they, they believe in Enslaved African Landing Commemorative Day. That's what they believe. And they celebrate that day and they simplify it. Some simplify it. And this is complicated because they have lots of people who claim to represent them. 
and they'll argue with that if they hear this, but they do have multiple people representing them. And they claim that 1619, this date in 1619, August 25th, was that was it really the day America was founded. And they claim that the colonists used free labor to build Virginia, among other things. And that there's some truth to that. But our country did not start on 1619. In fact, I argue that it didn't start in uh, 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. I mean, certainly that was a formative document, but it really... We really became a nation when we approved the U.S. Constitution in 1787, and it was subsequently ratified by enough of the colonies, uh, nine of the colonies, over the next few years. So this, this, you hear about this 1619 project, and you hear lots of talk about critical race theory. You hear it from the news with parents objecting to this theory being in some of our textbooks, and then, as I said, it has its basis, a Marxist doctrine that sees the world headed toward utopia from the deconstruction of all oppressive systems. So, so this, this doctrine, critical race theory, I, I just I want you to hear this. It really is about, now I'm not saying everyone who says they support critical race theory believes this, but if they really understand it and really believe their ideology, this ideology, they want to deconstruct all love the oppressive systems. So what would that look like? Well, they're opposed to family. Now, I, and I, I know lots of families that have one parent or lots of families that are not necessarily united. I can't stand the word dysfunctional family, those two words together, because all families are dysfunctional if the standard is perfection. If the standard is godlike perfection, all families are dysfunctional. So I'm not talking about Mayberry or some picket fence utopian family. I'm talking about just the family. Some people call it the nuclear family, the the Christian family. And I think we should go to the Bible to see the world culminating toward ultimate restoration through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the family is talked about an awful lot in Scripture. And I think a critical theory, critical race theory in particular, that seeks to break down the world of the oppressor, this deconstruction of all oppressive systems, will eventually attack the family. Now, I I do lots of work, if you were listening at the beginning, I have a firm called Christian Financial Solutions, CFS Financial is is how we do business, CFS Financial, and you can learn more about it at johnwarrenmedia.com. And in that firm, I do some work with uh, some government loan programs. And it's funny that just this week, I encountered a U.S. government requirement that for a Christian organization to participate in a certain loan program, and this is administered differently all over the country, But in this one particular region, there is a requirement that is enforced. Sometimes government officials look the other way on these things that says that it can't be a Christian organization that seeks to proselytize or otherwise disciple. And so there's already in this country a knockout punch, probably a direct abuse of the First Amendment, if not a clause in the uh, equal protection and uh, other clauses in the, in the constitution. But nonetheless, the U S government has already decided to discriminate now against Christian organizations. And in that value system, in that, in the statement of faith uh, that most of the organizations I work with, whether they be Christian schools, churches, or parachurch ministries is, is some reference to the family being ordained by God being formed by God. And so there's already an effort underway to break down all oppressive systems. And the family is one of those systems to most who espouse critical race theory. The the main oppressors, just to say it again, clearly are to the critical race theorist are white cisgender. That is uh, the sex matches gender uh, heteronormative. That is attractive to the opposite sex, Christian males, now, I, you know, I'm stereotyping a little bit because not every critical race theorist would, would agree with all that, but generally the caricature is, is that group. So to critical race theorists, this group 
this group controls the ideology of society. Did you hear that? This group controls. And now I've seen some country club stories and and I've, I've been part of one, part of several over the years where there was not racial diversity among the members. And we have elements of racism in our society, for sure, don't we? And we're not going to get into the technical definition of racism, but to claim that there is no racism in our society would be silly. And at the same time, I don't want to let the pendulum swing back the other direction and say, therefore, I have to embrace critical race theory. That is a logical fallacy on several levels. So we're not going to straw man. We're not going to create this false argument, this straw man that we can knock down easily. We're going to look at at kind of the nuance of the argument. There is racism in society, and I've experienced it. Now, I haven't experienced it personally, but I've watched it happen to friends. And a couple of places where I've seen it happen is I have a friend who, before it was politically correct to say this, he's an African-American, and he said he would tell me from time to time that he got pulled over for driving while being black. And I, at first, I didn't understand it, and I kind of laughed it off. And then months later, I, I kind of realized what he meant. I, I asked him to explain it to me, and I don't remember the numbers, but he had been pulled over while driving uh, many, many more times than I had. And I, he actually told me, we played golf together, and he, and he told me we went into a pro shop one time. He liked to play at lots of different courses. And he said, just watch what happens when we walk in there together. And he was right. And I, I don't, I think this is just a bias. I don't, I don't know that it was really racism, but it was emblematic of kind of racist tendencies when the person working there would, would look to me and ask if he could help me first, uh, regardless of, of who walked in the door first. My family just experienced this. Interestingly, uh, we went to visit our daughter and we were at a restaurant for coffee our last morning there with her and before we had to return home last week and there were a couple of African-American parties and us standing in the uh, lobby area and the young lady walked up and didn't, you couldn't really tell. There was no line, no queue. You couldn't really tell who was there first. And she looked at us and said, how many are in your party without hesitating. Now I understand that that is really subtle to most people, but we do have, and I have to say it in, in an episode like this, I don't want to make you angry. I'm not running around looking for examples of racial bias, but it exists. And we can be honest about it. It's really funny in my classes at Circle Christian School. I have a handful, not, not many, African-American students. And one of them, uh, who I'm not going to name, is brilliant. And he understands this, and he's very comfortable with this topic. He's, he's an eloquent, you know, his name's Sam, I'll tell you that. And he's an eloquent speaker on this topic right off the cuff. And he's got great relationships with other students. And we can, we can actually talk about the fact that, yeah, there are elements of racism in our society, but we don't then, therefore, have to embrace critical race theory. So you know who the main oppressors are, the white, cisgender, heteronormative. Use those words when you have these debates and you'll impress your friends, Christian males. And this group, they believe, critical race theorists believe, controls the ideology of society. Now, it's interesting because they also buy into the fact. Now, remember what we said in the beginning, that truth is subjective, that truth is not objective reality, that we can't objectively know truth. There certainly isn't absolute truth, but they believe that they figured out that this group controls, hear that word, the ideology of society. So that sounds like a society that would embrace, it sounds like a group, critical race theorists, that must embrace some level of absolute truth if they believe that this group of white, cisgender, heteronormative Christian males controls the ideology of society. It would be impossible to control such a thing, wouldn't it, were there not some absolute truths. They believe that the oppressors have systemic power over the legal, cultural, and all other institutional structures that define civilization. You hear that? They believe the oppressors have systemic power over the legal, cultural, and all other institutional structures that define civilization, that define society. So that's quite the control. And they also believe that 
particularly white people, and I know I'm speaking plainly, but that's what we do here at Relentless Truth, they believe that white people are blinded by prejudice and subconscious bias against racial minorities in particular. And there's some truth to that. We, we all have blind spots. My wife could tell you about my, there are some things in the way she thinks and the way she operates that I've come to understand the fringe of, but, but I, don't, I don't fully understand. So, so I'm, I'm all in with the, the notion that we all have biases and we all have, we all approach even conversations, various topics with a history, with even a genetic predisposition. I get that. But the critical race theorist believes that the concept, this notion, again, of objective truth is actually used by white people to advance their interests. So there's this concerted effort to do so. Now, have there been some white people who've done that in U.S. history over the years? Absolutely, yes. But is there a concerted effort by all white people to conceal the truth who are so blinded by prejudice and subconscious bias that, that we can't see truth? I certainly hope not. I know it exists, but I don't believe the critical race theorist has this diagnosis correct. And I am absolutely certain that they don't have the solution, the correct biblical solution. What they contend, listen to this, is that victims of oppression have a more accurate understanding of society because they're not blinded by a system made to favor them. How about that? Listen to that again. They believe victims of oppression have a more accurate understanding of society because they're not blinded by a system made to favor them. That is Marxism. That comes directly from Karl Marx. And if you notice, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to read all the references, but the scripture references, but one of the things that is so clearly discussed in the Bible is this notion of bearing false witness and I don't know about you, but I understand the purpose of the law is to, I, I want all my vocational theologian friends to respect me, so I got to say this. I understand that the purpose of the law, the purpose of even the Ten Commandments and all of the law is to reveal who God is. It's to be our school teacher, to show us God's character. So I understand that. I know the value of even the Ten Commandments in in that regard. I also know that we are not these robotic-like box-checking creatures that are to go try to conform to all of the law. And I know that the law still has purpose today. We can study the book of Romans. Even Paul said that, yes, the law has value. We're not antinomian. We're not against the law. But at the same time, we don't live by checklist. We walk by faith. We are dependent on God's grace. And so we're not these box checkers that are attempting to keep the law. But this, this notion of bearing false witness is interesting. That, that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. And it's mentioned many times in Scripture, and it's paraphrased and quoted in, in the New Testament, thou shalt not bear false witness. Well, what I think of when I hear that is, and, and you can do this with all the commandments, the Ten Commandments especially, you can read them and interpret them literally and then if you have the benefit of, of reading historical work by Augustine and others, you can see that this notion of each of the commandments, but particularly bearing false witness, has broader implications. And so I picture a courtroom when I read the thou shalt not bear false witness, and I, I think it means I shouldn't go into the courtroom and take an oath and lie about something. But bearing false witness goes much, much further than that, doesn't it? It can be just creating this caricature of of another argument. It can happen when we gossip. It's fascinating to me that at the end of Romans 1, when Paul has talked about all kinds of sin, especially sexual sin, he mentions gossip and obedience to parents in that list at the end of Romans 1. So this notion of of bearing false witness can be just lying about the facts. It can be not being candid about the facts, not being forthcoming, lying by omission. It can be this caricature, I believe, that the critical race theorists have created where they say that you're an oppressor and, and you're so blinded you can't even understand the problem. That is, in fact, 
bearing false witness. So there's one other, actually about three or four other definitions I want to give us. And then, then I, I want to talk just briefly about what, what are we to do with this? There, there's this thing called intersectionality that is also important. So you will have learned two things. You will have learned about Project 1619 and, and intersectionality, if nothing else, in this episode. This is the idea of intersecting levels of oppression. So a black woman, for example, experiences greater oppression because of race and gender than a white woman would. And a black transgender person would experience even more. And so there's this notion of intersecting levels of oppression. So the the more of these characteristics a person has, think about the implications of this, especially transgender, sexuality, and so on, the more of these intersecting levels this a person has, the more oppressed they actually are. Critical race theory advocates, it suggests that people can find their level of oppression by analyzing the intersectionality, the intersecting levels. So the more of these characteristics you have, the more likely you are to be oppressed. Therefore, the more clarity you will have. Listen to this. Think about the implications of this. Therefore, the transgender community, uh, even transgender racial minority transgender community, would have more insight. Because remember we said earlier, the critical race theorist believes that the oppressed has clarity, the oppressor does not. So the most insightful people in society, according to the critical race theorist, would be those who are, are experiencing gender confusion. So not something they wave their banner over, but something to think about. There's another concept I just want you to know because it's kind of a cool word. Uh, and it's a concept that is necessary. The, the hegemony, H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y is the way it's spelled. And that is the dominant group in society. And if you're part of the hegemony, then you're an oppressor and you probably don't even know that you're oppressed and you owe reparations for the oppression of your ancestors. And that's another conversation for another day, this reparation idea. But we'll maybe tackle monuments and reparations and those things on another episode. One more concept, though, is equity versus equality. The critical race theorist supports equity, that is, equal or representative outcomes. No place in the world has that ever worked. In other words, if society is populated, and, and you go back to those characteristics that we talked earlier, whether it's race, sexual orientation, or some other even religious identification, that those things the individual group, the sample that is in question must reflect that of society at large. And that's the subject of lots of lawsuits. Equity is a challenging concept because it sounds so fair. And I, I don't want to get in trouble with this, but if you, if you think about that, what would happen to the quality of the NBA if that occurred? It would go down, wouldn't it? And no place where lots of money changes hands does this, does this matter. The, the Colin Kaepernick discussion is an interesting one. And uh, there's a, a female reporter, Michelle Tafoya, who's in trouble, reportedly going to have to leave NBC because she said, believe me, it's not about the color of his skin. If an NFL owner thought he could help them win a Super Bowl, they'd, they'd, they'd hire him in a heartbeat. And I believe we all know that to be true. But this doctrine of equity is something that critical race theories focus on, whereas the doctrine that I think is biblical is this doctrine of equality, that is fairness of opportunity. Now, I think of Augusta National Golf Course and other, other places that excluded women and minorities from their membership, and they made the argument, well, nobody's interested. And the reason nobody was interested is because they were white organizations populated by white men who had no interest in including anyone else. That's a different issue. 
But this distinction between equity and equality is important. Fairness of opportunity, real fairness of opportunity, I believe, is a biblical concept and should be something that all Christians advocate for. So where are we? What are some practical applications for this? Well, first, I think we have to go back and orient ourselves to the gospel. And we have to know that God created us for several purposes. We decided to exercise our our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness. We wanted to be like God. That is our problem. We are born in sin. We're born in Adam. We're born sinners. We must be redeemed. We must repent and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And that should be our focus. But it is not helpful, Christian brother and sister, for us to, in my opinion, scream all lives matter in the face of black lives matter, or to contend that racism isn't a thing, that it doesn't exist. It does, in fact, exist. And we ought to be honest about that. How, how do we do this? Well, we, we go love everyone. And to love everyone, we have to engage in minority communities. We have to spend time with people who are not like us. It is amazing how much we can learn when we get outside of our comfort zone, outside of our bubble. And I know that's hard to do in the context of COVID and all the restrictions and lockdowns, but go spend time with people who aren't like you and spend time listening rather than trying to convince. You're not going to get bad ideology in your head. Go hang out with critical race theorists if you're mature enough to do so and listen to their arguments, and you'll be amazed what you'll learn. I'm not, I, I'm not suggesting for a second that you'll convert, but you'll at least learn some helpful perspectives. I hope this has been helpful. This is an attack on the family. It's an attack on Christianity, and it should be regarded as such. It is not to be taken lightly, and I don't want to suggest that, but I do want to suggest that we can love our neighbor and that should be our aspiration. If we really live lives that are designed to be productive, that are designed to glorify God and love our neighbor as ourselves, we must absolutely understand the nuance in this challenging subject. We did not do justice to this today, but please uh, like, share, review, and subscribe to our podcast and We'll come back next time and clean up some of the loose ends from today. And we'll also talk about some of the implications of COVID-19. Until then. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.